GI Connect is an initiative of Core to Ed. This podcast is supported by an independent educational grant from Bayer. The views in this podcast are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' academic institution or the rest of the GI Connect group. For expert disclosures on any conflict of interest, please visit the Core to Ed website. Hello and welcome to the first GI Connect podcast series where we are discussing targeted and immunotherapy options for patients with colorectal and gastric cancer. This is the third episode in our series where we're going to um, move from some of the more defined treatment options for these patients to what we feel are some of the future developments um, in terms of targeted agents and immunotherapy for colorectal and gastric cancer. My name is Dr. Autumn McCree. I'm a medical oncologist from the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill in the United States. And I am joined today by Dr. Dominic Modest from the Charité University of Medicine in Germany and Dr. Jenny Seligman from the University of Leeds um, in the United Kingdom. Thank you for joining me. I think um, certainly in our first two episodes, we've spent a lot of time really going through some of the the data that has been practice changing for these patients um, with clinical trials that have shown ways to incorporate um, novel targeted therapies and immunotherapies. But most of these trials have been done in patients with advanced disease. Most of these have been done in patients with stage four disease or unresectable disease. And, and I'm curious um, what we think the role is in immunotherapy for patients with earlier stage disease who are being treated with curative disease. So I'll start with you, Jenny, um, talking about whether we should be thinking about immunotherapy options in the neoadjuvant setting for patients who have MSI high colon cancer. Sure, and I, I think this is a really, really exciting development um, and a really great opportunity for, for us and our patients in the future. So the neoadjuvant setting itself in colorectal cancer um, is quite new. So we've just seen data from the Foxtrot trial showing that you can move six weeks of chemo- chemotherapy ahead of surgery, and it's safe to do that. Um, and it resulted in improved disease-free survival, Um, but important lessons learned, which are important for immunotherapy, is that you can have an opportunity to assess the tumour, both pre-treatment and post-treatment, which is, of course, something that you you can't do in the advanced setting normally. So that's a a fantastic opportunity for, for understanding biology, to understand response and resistance, and also, Foxtrot showed us that um, pathological response also correlates really well with longer term outcomes. So it gives us an early signal of what how the patients are doing and whether you perhaps need to, to change practice post-operative in the adjuvant setting. So the most exciting data um, to, to discuss is from the, the NISH trial. So that was quite a, a small study, but it looked at giving um, one dose of epilumumab and two doses of Nevo prior to surgery. And, what, and, and the, these were in patients who um, both um, deficient mismatch repair patients and proficient mismatch repair patients. And, and what they reported was really exciting. I mean, first of all, we saw 
100% pathological response within the deficient mismatch repair group, which is spectacular in, in all of our um, studies of colorectal cancer. And also they saw responses in the proficient mismatch repair group, which is which is also really interesting. So we we obviously they've reported um i think it was in 2020 um the trial and we're awaiting longer term data but of course it'll be it'll be difficult to interpret the the three year dfs in a small group of patients but but this is a a huge um a huge landmark change in my opinion and and we really should be thinking about how we are are treating these patients particularly as um another key message from foxtrot was that patients with deficient mismatch repair didn't have particularly good responses to neoadjuvant chemotherapy so so novel novel treatment strategies are required and it almost really begs the question too, you know, it's one thing in a colon cancer patient who has the option of, of resection and, and being put back into continuity. You know, I, I think this will be a really interesting question in rectal cancer too, because as we started to see more paradigms for organ preservation um, and how we should try to do more total neoadjuvant therapy, it really will be interesting to see if bringing immunotherapy into this realm for patients, given what we've seen in niche, will allow them to have a better chance of of a, a successful watch and wait strategy. I, I agree with you, but I, I mean, potentially, I am the real optimist in the room here. We may even get to a point where we're looking at watch and wait in, in colon cancer in these patients. I mean, in rectal cancer, there's there's not many patients that who have deficient mismatch repair tumours. So, of course, as you go around the colon, the, the prevalence becomes less. So I, there's not a huge amount of patients, but there are certainly ongoing trials looking at immunotherapy radiation combinations as well in um, the neoadjuvant setting in, in early rectal cancer. So, so yeah, I, it could be a complete paradigm shift. I think it already is this, in terms of paradigm shift because I think the NICE trial has one merit, um, which is reminding us of something that mankind knows for more than 100 years, meaning that cancer is a lost battle of the immune system of the patient. Um, and that metastasized disease is a greater lost battle than localized disease, meaning in turn, localized cancers are in a trend more immunogene or at least to be better addressed with immunotherapy than metastatic disease. And I think this is what really has been put back to the, the top of the agenda by the NICHE trial because we had to accept that the MSI data that we have on colorectal cancer and metastatic disease, as great as they are, could be even better in localized disease, and that the effect that localized tumors might be responding much better to immunotherapy might be extendable to the MSS portion of the disease. So I think that, that really made us rethink the whole, uh, the whole disease. Um, and I'm totally, uh, totally with, with both of you, um, if these data, which are really small, I mean, we're making a big fuss out of a non-randomized phase two trial without long-term uh, observation, um, it's near uh, to, to be so spectacular um, that we consider it kind of uh, on the border where we say, okay, we, we can just try that in clinical practice. Um, and I think, um, especially in rectal cancers, where we do a hell of intensity in terms of treatment, 
um, to, to control the tumor locally, distantly, um, to, to preserve the organ. So we, we do a lot of things. So I think that is the niche for the niche trial um, where these things will be implemented first. And also, um, as Jenny just pointed out, um, if neoadjuvant treatment algorithms are implemented in colon, colon cancer, apart from the rectum, the MSI tumors, um, it will be a very, very interesting and also exciting question whether we need to resect them um, if they respond like that. Um, and I'm too fearful at the moment to give a, a clear answer to that. But if, if the Absolutely. niche is right, <laughs> yeah, if the niche is right, um, that, that could be a question, just like in rectal cancer, where we have a certain option to control on, on the responses um, that could be arising. Well, and I, as a reminder, you know, the MSI high story in general started with a lot of really small clinical trials. So, you know, when you go back and you look at when we were first starting to get an inkling that this was going to be a thing, these were not large randomized studies. You know, these were were small sort of investigator initiated trials. So I, I think this could be something that really develops into a, a practice changing paradigm. I think where we know the data is a little bit more um, convincing is in uh, the gastroesophageal cancers, where we now have data that has really shown us how we can use immunotherapy for patients who have undergone resection. Um, Dominic, do you feel like the the paradigm there is is convincing enough to change practice? Um, from a European perspective, I would say maybe. From a North American perspective, I would possibly say yes. Um, <laughs> I think the the trial that we are referring to. Um, it's absolutely convincing. It's checkmate 577. Um, that's not the problem. I think it has been a point of discussion that the implementation of nivolumab as adjuvant therapy uh, after the cross protocol, so chemo radiation and surgery, is an algorithm that is not implemented everywhere in the world. I think some of the Asian countries just resect and then think of adjuvant therapy. Um, in Europe, we have I think a well-implemented strategy of the neoadjuvant chemo. Um, but I think um, that that's not the point. The point is um, that it is the first trial that has been addressing um, not completely responding patients at high risk in a very difficult to treat disease and having a huge effect, I would argue, huge effect for an adjuvant therapy. Um, and it's not the first one. I think it's uh, we have always uh, tried to find uh, parallelisms uh, with other diseases. It reminds me of the Pacific trial implementing duvalumab uh, in radio chemotherapy and in lung cancers. Um, I think that's a paradigm that, that has been implemented uh, for three to four years now. Now we talk in 2021. Um, I think that's standard of care, and we are now starting uh, the same uh, with uh, with gastroesophageal um, cancers that have been uh, failing to reach a complete remission, which is a really a high a high border to, to have, um, and resection uh, with complete remission. Yeah, I would say from a clinical perspective, you know, this is a real challenge when you get patients through chemo rads and then and and you resect them and, and you find that their response has been so dismal. We, we haven't really had a good option. I think what was so interesting about Checkmate 577 is that we saw responses regardless of histology, which we haven't seen necessarily in the metastatic setting. So getting back to your previous point, that maybe these adenocarcinomas that you know, really don't always respond to immunotherapy in the metastatic setting. 
can benefit when the either the you know we're just dealing with micrometastatic disease or you know the immune microenvironment must be different it must be prime different in these earlier stage patients so i think there's some really interesting things to learn there mechanistically but certainly in the clinical realm this has given us something um, to really help those patients where the outcomes are going to be pretty poor um, after they have have not really responded um, you know, I, I would just like to open this up now and maybe go back to you, Jenny, in terms of, of all the things we've discussed over the, the three series that we've, we've completed now. You know, what is, what is the most promising targets, um, specifically in colorectal cancer, that aren't yet reported out or aren't yet approved, but we're really excited about in clinical trials? So we've started to see um, some data eventually come through for for KRAS mutant colorectal cancer. I mean, this is this has been a really a, a hard journey. I mean, we've we've talked about MSI high, we've talked about HER two, we've talked about BRAF, but actually they represent quite small proportions of the overall patient population. Whereas about you know forty to forty five percent of patients have a KRAS mutation, and we we don't have and, and currently there's no targeted agent. Um, for the KRAS oncogene that's approved. So there has been some interesting studies and, and ongoing developments. Um, there has been some disappointments. I mean, we've seen some disappointing um, results from um, RAF-MEK-ERK inhibition, um, PI3 kinase, aka TMTOR inhibition. We've seen a lot of toxicity and, and quite disappointing results. Um, one one um, paper I'd like to point out is the uh, New England Journal of Medicine paper on the phase one trial of sotorasib. Um, so that's one of the, the first selective KRAS inhibitors, um, which is selective for KRAS PG12C, um, which only represents one to three percent of the whole population. Um, and what we saw was in a, a heavily pre-treated population where we're seeing some partial responses, but a, a, a fair proportion, about two-thirds of patients, um, had disease control um, and a median PFS of I think it was about four months. What we did see, however, was that there was less efficacy in the colorectal population than the um, non-small cell lung population, which makes you wonder whether the KRAS wasn't actually the only dominant driver, um, whereas actually there's something going on in the, the WINT in EGFR pathway. And, and actually similar to the, the situation that we saw in BRAF, that actually we'll have to understand the biology a bit better and, and, build, and, and build based upon um, biological rationale, I hope. But as I understand, there's there's quite a few ongoing trials looking at this agent in combination. The the other exciting development, I suppose, in KRAS is is understanding its role in the the cell cycle. Um, what what we're getting increasing evidence of is that. Um, KRAS mutated tumours often have more genomic instability, um, which again could be uh, another potential drug target. So, so one example of this is, now I'm hoping I'm going to say this right, on Vansertib. Um, so that targets the um, polo-like kinase 1 um, in the cell cycle. And initial data from that, again, suggested um, responses in combination with chemotherapy and bevacizumab. Um, and so that's a exciting ongoing um, development as well. 
Yeah, I have to say for GI medical oncologists, you know, targeting KRAS is somewhat of the holy grail. Um, and I would say from a clinical perspective, treating these patients on these clinical trials um, for the G12C mutants has been hands down one of the most satisfying things that I have done in the early phase um, drug development world recently. And and it's not just about their responses, you know, it's also about the tolerability of these drugs. I've, I think the toxicity that we're seeing from the direct KRAS inhibitors seem to be actually quite favorable compared to what we've seen maybe with some of the MEK and the ERK inhibitors. Yeah, it's been so, it's been so hard to deliver those as well. It's I agree. Very challenging and not very successful. So, I mean, we have a a cadre of negative trials combining MEC and ERK um, with with other targeted drugs. So I really think this represents a very promising pathway forward for these patients. Um, And I, I think it'll be really interesting to see how we as oncologists build on that success to see how we're going to combine this with chemotherapy, how we're going to pull these drugs up into earlier lines of therapy. With that, I will go ahead and summarize um, what we've learned today. This is the third and final episode of our podcast series looking at um, colorectal and gastric cancer in terms of targeted and immunotherapy. And we've spent a bit of time today talking about how we can apply the lessons that we've learned in the metastatic setting to patients with earlier stage curable disease, both in the neoadjuvant setting with colon cancer and the adjuvant setting with gastric cancer. And I think we ended on on certainly a high note thinking about um, some of the promising ways that we're targeting KRAS, which, which is an oncogene that affects almost all of the GI cancers that we treat. So I wanted to thank um, Jenny and Dominic for joining me today, and we appreciate you listening. Um, thank you very much. This GI Connect podcast was brought to you by Core2Ed Independent Medical Education. Please visit core2ed.com for more information.